0: a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm
1: E. Remus Jackson.
0: We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts.
1: My segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic.
0: And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. My new graphic novel, The Breakaways, which is for middle grade students, is out now from first second and you can order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. I have a master's degree in art education.
1: And I am a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. Uh, my research focuses on comic studies, critical prison studies, and museum studies. I also make uh, largely self-published comics. Uh, my most recent comic, See Me, uh, is published through Disket Press and is available through them and also just won a PRISM Award.
0: Congratulations. Thanks. Neither This is uh, San Diego Comic-Con weekend and neither of us are there because we live on the East Coast and no. have other things to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is episode twenty three of drawing a dialogue, and we are doing uh mm-hmm. restorative slash transformative justice so introduce us e sure um so restorative
1: slash transformative justice um we're kind of referring to them. Uh, simultaneously because they essentially mean the same thing. Both um, essentially refer to um, seeking non-carceral alternatives to harm reduction in various settings. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go much more deeply into like the nuances in my segment. Um, but this is a topic that's pretty important to me. It comes up a lot in my research uh, since I work a lot with Um, The relationship between carcerality and like uh, transgender and over-policed like communities, queer communities. So I uh, feel very deeply and strongly about this topic. And I'm also going to be, as I sort of talk, unpacking, I think um, in June, um, I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to attend uh, the Fight Toxic Prisons Convergence, which is an annual like conference that Fight Toxic Prisons puts on. Um, Fight Toxic Prisons being a prisonist abolitionist org with a particular focus on, like, in the intersection between prison abolition and environmental justice. And so a lot of the conference was spent talking about the importance of um, imagining, thinking, and dreaming as a central component of transformative justice and abolition. So I think, like, having these sorts of conversations, us being able to not present as experts, but sort of like bring these resources that are out there to the table. Um, A lot of what I am going to point to are different organizations, uh, workbooks and toolkits for people. Um, And I think like those are really important to highlight that like this work is actually being done uh, and it's available and you can like learn it and like study it together with your peers. And I just want us to sort of spend some time on it because I think it's important.
0: Yeah. And then so my segment is going to take... Um, sort of the imagination of restorative justice in the adult world, in the you know out uh, the community, mm-hmm. and sort of uh, the ways in which education and pedagogy has been adapting it to sort of uh, move away from a uh, punitive discipline in schools, and the ways in which restorative justice and transformative justice, either or, yeah, can be adapted to really help education and like uh, retaining like student retention. Um, So this is um, going to sort of continue off of conversations that we've had um, especially our episode 16 episode, which is mm-hmm. going to be our incarceration, school to prison pipeline, and resistance episode. Um, but also, you know, the trans memoir and student climate episode, the masculinity episode, all of this mm-hmm. sort of ties together. And what I really like is that this is taking it from more like statistics and facts and sort of moving it into an imaginative, a, um, a way of thinking about the future of like a th- really a positive uh, change that we want to do. It's more speculative, like, you know, like trying to yeah. think of like a positive future um, yes. uh, to move towards. Um, and so there's ways in which uh, communities are doing this, but also there's a lot of action taking place uh, within schools. Um that's happening right yeah, now. Yeah. So, and, and, and I think um, I want to follow up with E in that we aren't experts on this. We are just um, mm-hmm. people in a community who are working towards something um, with other people. So we want to share stuff that yeah. we share resources and thoughts that we have and help uh, build imagination. Um, sound good? Yeah, sounds great. Great, E. Let's, um, I want to hear what your segment is all about. Cool. Um, so
1: I wanted to give a quick content warning off the top here that um some of the examples of transformative justice in practice, some of the organizations that I'm gonna be talking about focus on child sexual abuse and sexual abuse. Um, I'm not gonna talk about sexual abuse in detail, but it is mentioned because the the curriculums and workbooks that they're building around are focused on those experiences. Um so but before we get into that, I want to just sort of quickly go on to sort of the nuances of restorative versus transformative justice. Um, like I said, okay. essentially, both are seeking non-carceral alternatives to harm reduction.
0: I want to stop you. I just need you to define carceral because I don't think that's necessarily a word everyone is using every day.
1: Yes. Good point. All right. So um, when I say carceral, what i mean is the the prison system and when i say the prison system what i mean is uh the prisons and also uh our justice system and also how punishment is used sort of within daily practice um so not so the state but not just like government officials also how people in various positions of power sort of wield discipline and punish
0: mm. Thank you.
1: Yeah, no problem. Um, So for restorative justice, I have a definition from John uh, Braithwaite, who's a scholar whose focus is on restorative justice and the peace movement. Um, He writes, uh, restorative justice is a process where all the stakeholders affected by an injustice have the opportunity to discuss how they have been affected by the injustice and to decide what should be done to repair the harm. Essentially, crime hurts. Justice should heal. Mm. And then uh, for Transformative Justice, uh, Candace Smith, in an article for Sociology Lens in 2013, defines it as... as expressed by uh, John Francis Wozniak, transformative justice seeks to change the larger social structure as well as the personal structure of those involved. Um, and she goes on to write, while transformative justice more plainly states its objective of achieving soci- social level and individual level transformation, the less ambitious term restorative justice necessarily leads to questions regarding what we want to restore. If one poor neighbor steals from another poor neighbor, are we seeking just are we just seeking to restore the victim to his previous? Level of poverty. With the term transformative justice, it is more blatantly clear that we wish to not only provide restitution to the victim, but that we want to improve the overall situation for the victim, the offender, and the community. So essentially, Mm. they mean the same thing. I hear people like use either or, right? There's not like a real strong difference between them, but the word transformative has like a stronger clarity to it, right? Than restorative.
0: Yeah, because restorative is as if you want to restore what the state it was before the injustice had taken place, but there are like the situation is already like ridden with a lot of injustices that need to be transformed. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, So in my segment, personally, I prefer the term transformative justice and it's the term that the organizations I'm um, citing from you. So that's what I'm going to stick with, but I do want to like emphasize that they are used fairly interchangeably it just sort of depends on like what circle you're in and like what resources you're working with
0: and for um a lot of the resources that i use in my segment after e which is going to be about education they use restorative justice i haven't seen transformative justice um in at least the resources that i have but also you know they talk about wanting to build something mm-hmm. before something happens right so they talk about wanting to build strong community bef- so like students feel safe um in restorative justice practices when something happens and then so that sort of makes me think that they are actually talking about transformative justice <laughs> yeah yeah they're yeah. talking about Wanting to do change before a instance takes place. So,
1: yeah. So, yeah. And the other thing I really want to emphasize is that um, what I'm talking about today isn't like theoretical. Um, A lot of the work of abolition is imagining and dreaming and thinking, but this is work that's being done in reality, in people's communities, um, the models that are being presented, uh, different organizations' approaches to transformative justice is being done. Um, so I'm highlighting some existing models and then sort of thinking about how we can adapt those practices into other facets of our lives. Um, but I want it to be like clear that like this is not just like, oh, what if we did this? It's like th- there are people that do this work. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's like really important to remember. So I'm going to start with a group called Insight. Um, Insight is a network of radical feminists of color organizing to end state violence and violence in our homes and communities. Um, Insight developed uh, the community accountability model. And most of what I'm talking about is community accountability. That's sort of the term that gets used to refer to um, community-wide transformative justice practices. So I'm going to quote from their, like, community accountability working document. Um, We are told to call the police and rely on the criminal justice system to address violence within our communities. However, if police and prisons facilitate or perpetuate violence against us rather than increase our own safety, how do we create strategies to address violence within our communities, including domestic violence, sexual violence, and child abuse, that don't rely on police or prisons? Developing community-based responses to violence is one critical option. Community accountability is a community-based strategy rather than a police-slash-prison-based strategy to address violence within our communities. Community accountability is a process in which a community, a group of friends, a family, a church, a workplace, an apartment complex, a neighborhood, etc., work together to do the following things. Create and affirm values and practices that resist abuse and oppression and encourage safety, support, and accountability. Provide safety and support to community members who are violently targeted that respects their self-determination. Develop sustainable strategies to address community members' abusive behavior, creating a process for them to account for their actions and transform their behavior, and commit to the ongoing development of all members of the community and the community itself to transform the political conditions that reinforce oppression and violence." So those, those are like their prints, their founding principles for community accountability. And I want to sort of like highlight like a large part of transformative justice is preventative work, right? So it's not just reacting. It's not just reacting to something that's happened, it's laying the groundwork ahead of time so that there is clear guides on what to do when something happens while you work to um, end the conditions that allow for those things to happen in the first place. Which is why a lot of um, transformative justice resources are things like toolkits for communities and curriculum and um, guides that are put together by communities that are then used as working documents to refer to. Um, I think we talked about this actually in the trans uh, school climate episode when we were talking about Title IX and, like, the one of the so- potential solutions to the vaguities of channel, Title IX was to, like, have very firm, like, guidelines to refer to. yeah that's a transformative justice practice. Um, The -hmm. other thing I wanted to very quickly highlight from Insight, um, I, unfortunately we don't have the time here to sort of go into the step-by-step of their processes, but it will be linked and I recommend everyone check it out. But they have, um, as part of their community accountability, a specific section dedicated to um, things to think about, issues, concerns, things like that, um, which always sort of come up and when we sort of try to imagine alternatives to policing, right? Because often we aren't sure how to handle particularly like uh, violent crimes and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, like, what are the boundaries of acceptable forms of community accountability? For instance, is it okay to respond to perpetrators with physical violence? Would we ever consider such acts violent? How do we determine which strategies are acceptable or not? Um, And then they note that some strategies depend on banishing or ostracizing the perpetrator from the community. On the one hand, it may help the person who has been victimized not to see that person. On the other hand, is the strategy simply the same as the prison system approach, which also banishes people from the community? In addition, if the person leaves the community, will they just abuse people in another community, and will you lose your ability to hold them accountable? There may be ways to keep the person in the community without the person directly affected by them to have to see that person. Or what if we presume there is no outside our community? Another approach that has been used to keep the person there, but to sanction them, such as all members refusing to show them affection. It is also important that a community of accountability does not become a community that just enables the abuse. Um, And then they sort of note, I think, they just sort of note, like, concerns about public shaming for some groups that has been effective, um, but it has been reported that using this approach in queer communities, um, that this approach actually escalates violence. So there's just, like, as part of this work, there's also thinking about, like, what are the steps we take to do effective strategies that... Um, prioritize um, people who have experienced violence but uh, also don't just like shuffle the burden to someone else or actually make things worse like escalate the situation right um, mm-hmm. so I just wanted to sort of highlight some of those questions that they are like that people are thinking through as they work on this and um, and then I wanted to also highlight uh, Generation Five. Generation Five is an organization that works through transformative justice to end child sexual abuse. Um, and in 2007, they put to, they published this uh, very large document called "Towards Transformative Justice," um, which basically explains what transformative justice is. Why they use it specifically in trying to end child sexual abuse, uh, what their strategies are, different strategies that, like, other communities can maybe take into account. Like, it's just, like, a very long, good document that a lot of communities refer to, even for things outside of um, child sexual abuse. So I'm going to quote from it. Transformative justice seeks to provide survivors with immediate safety and long-term healing and reparations while those who sexually abuse children accountable within and by their communities. This accountability includes stopping immediate abuse, making a commitment to not engage in further abuse, and offering reparations for past abuse. Such offender accountability requires community responsibility and access to ongoing support and transformative healing for offenders. Beyond survivors and offenders, transformative justice also seeks to transform inequity and power abuses within communities. Through building the capacity of communities to increase justice internally, transformative justice seeks to support collective action Action towards addressing larger issues of injustice and oppression. Um, so again, the project of this is not wait until something happens um, and then punish the person who did it. Right? It's identify things prior that the community can do to intervene, to interrupt, to prevent. And if something does happen, then taking steps to stop it, obviously, make healing the priority and also find a way to transform the situation so it doesn't keep happening and doing that internally within the community. So not turning to police, not turning to the criminal justice system, right? A lot of this is about self-determination and the ability of a community to sort of like work within itself. Um, so they list that the goals of transformative justice as a response to child sexual abuse are survivor safety, healing, and agency, offender accountability and transformation, community response and accountability, and transformation of the community and social conditions that create and perpetuate child sexual abuse, i.e. systems of oppression, exploitation, domination, and state violence, um, and there they use state to mean government, justice system, police, right? Um, they go, I'm going to just read a couple more things from this. Um, quote, the application of transformative justice centers the principle of liberation by addressing current manifestations of multiple intersecting forms of intimate community and state violence. Rather than assign narrow blame on individual, quote, criminals, the transformative justice model seeks to expand the very notion of who is responsible by mobilizing bystanders, challenging collusions with power, and situating individual interventions in the larger context of the social justice movement. We seek methods of attaining justice that challenge state and systemic violence rather than attempting to reform or redirect it. Our task is to create conditions of cooperation, respect, self-determination, and equitable access to resources while building community-based institutions operating within values and practices that make possible a world without child sexual abuse. Um, And again, this is obviously, their focus is child sexual abuse, but other organizations take these principles um, and apply them to other instances of intercommunity violence or harm that is done, right? The idea of interrupting uh, or intervening is really key to transformative justice that looks different for different situations. But again, like a heavy emphasis on like, how do we as members of the community create a system of accountability where we can sort of prevent, call in, interrupt, um, as opposed to just waiting until something has happened after, right?
0: It's... um. I mean, I think I want to acknowledge the discomfort I'm feeling, and possibly our listeners are feeling. Yes. Um, talking about child sexual abuse, especially in the context of um, drawing a dialogue, in the context of I'm assuming educators listen to this, um, people who interact with children, um, and also people who have uh, sexual abuse in their past, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's a common thing. So I think I co- sort of want to. Acknowledge that discomfort and also kind of lean into it because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of what transformative justice really is encouraging is um, imagining uh, these scenarios in order to um, transform who our communities are, who we are, so we can create prevention, we can um, be a strong in order to interact and stop Mm -hmm. situations. So I think I just sort of wanted to to acknowledge that this might be uncomfortable, um, but it is uncomfortable. That's what it is. And that that has a lot to do with the work. I think Um, that is a thing that's
1: difficult about these conversations, abolition in general, right? Because transformative justice is a part of abolition. Um, abolition referring to the...
0: Um, prison abolition, yeah, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it is that we don't often want to think about alternatives because it requires, like, thinking about confronting these situations ourselves. Um, and most of us aren't trained to do that, right? Which is why these, bu- these like, guides and toolkits and community organizations... Um, are important tools because the goal of them is to sort of help us um, work through that discomfort and um, learn how to be able to handle these situations, not just like broadly, but like what our own individual limits are, um, what we need support-wise, right? Because that's another part of it, like it's a community, it's not just you. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone expects... Uh, any right. individual person to be solely responsible for stopping these sorts of intimate violence, right, but having these guidelines,
0: yeah, um I also think we need to uh, step back and we need to re acknowledge that the perpetuating violence of uh, incarceration that is not helping our communities, that yes. has not been helping our communities. And so I, I think it's important to realize the reason that we're talking about restorative justice, the reason we're talking about transformative justice is that incarceration is uh, not an option. It's, yeah. it's, it's damaging and it hurts communities um, over and over again. And so that is why we are here. So I just wanted to um, remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the last um,
1: two things I wanted to quote real quick from Generation Five um, in in their document they break down like what accountability is, what safety is, what like all. And I wanted to read their statement on safety because I think that's really important as part of this, right? Um, We understand safety as liberation from violence, exploitation, and the threat of further acts of violence. The safety we seek manifests on three intersection, intersecting, and mutually reinforcing levels. On an individual level, a survivor's safety from immediate violence and the threat of further acts of violence, sexual, economic, etc., is central. For the community, safety comes from fostering community norms and practices which challenge violence and support conditions for liberation. Lastly, across communities and collectives, safety means mutual accountability, challenging power dynamics within and between groups, guarding against backlash, and, And building strong alliances so that we can collectively support and protect each other from interference and targeting by the state. So I think that's really important, um, especially in the context of what we were just talking about with discomfort, that um, there's multiple levels to this. And transformative justice seeks to prioritize um, the self-determination and safety of the person who has experienced violence or the people that have experienced violence. Um, but there has to be other structures in place, right? That that can't be the end. It also has to be the community. It also yeah. has to be um, different communities right. working together, right? Um, and then Generation mm-hmm. 5 strategies for transformative justice, so this is just a quick list, um, building a collective for preparation and capacity building. So the first two steps, right? You have to figure out what your community is, who the people are that you can have for accountability, um, and then prepare, right? Write these guidebooks. Do the research. Spend time thinking. Um, Naming and defining um, child sexual abuse, or I'm going to broaden that to be naming and defining acts of violence, right, that you want to prevent. Conducting assessment, Level of concern, opportunity, and capacity, right? This is going to be different depending on what your community looks like. Um, developing a safety strategy, supportive, he- supporting healing and resilience, holding accountability, and then working for community transformation. So I just wanted to sort of end on that because I think those are the steps that uh, a lot of different orgs sort of turn to when they're working on their own practices. Um, I wanted to make a quick note. Um, I talked about sort of it within these documents also, but just in case the language wasn't super clear, the part of this, the biggest part of this maybe, is abolishing policing. You can't have community accountability that relies on calling the police, and the goal should be to eliminate police, period. Um, So I wanted to just really quickly read in case... um, That is sort of like a strange idea to some of our followers. I wanted to really quickly read from the website Critical Resistance their definition of policing. So, quote, Mm. policing is a social relationship made up of a set of practices that are empowered by the state to enforce law and social control through the use of force. So they don't – that broadens it right from just the police, although the police are a huge part of that, to um, policing is an act uh, made through – things like campus security guards and campus police and sheriffs and like all these different forms of social control, right? Yes. Reinforcing the oppressive social and economic relationships that have been central to the U.S. throughout its history, the roots of policing in the United States are closely linked to the capture of people escaping slavery and the enforcement of the Black Codes. And if you aren't familiar with the Black Codes, essentially it's um, different Southern states had different ones, but they were a set of laws that were specific to... um, uh, black Americans in the wake of like um, the legal, the like legal doing away with slavery, right? Although we've sort of talked about how that didn't actually end it. Um, essentially, it made it so that that uh, newly freed enslaved people could be brought back in through the criminal justice system. Similarly, police forces mm. have been used to keep new immigrants quote in line and to prevent the poor and working classes from making demands. As social conditions change, how policing is used to target poor people, people of color, immigrants, and others who do not conform on the street or in their homes also shifts. The choices policing requires about which people to target, what to target them for, and when to arrest and book them play a major role in who ultimately gets imprisoned. So the reason people turn to transformative justice is because police is not an option for a lot of people, many people. Um, right. so if this is something that you're interested in and do you want to like learn more about and like get involved in your community, like we have to collectively understand that that means you can't call the police period. Yeah. So I just wanted to highlight that real quick. And then I wanted to sort of end on, um, this uh, blog post from Adrienne Marie Brown, who is a black feminist scholar, author, um, doula and women's rights activist, um, It is a blog post called What Is and Isn't Transformative Justice, and she's sort of reflecting on transformative justice within um, internet circles and things like that. It was published in 2015. Um, So just really quickly, I wanted to quote this part. When the response to mistakes, failure, and misunderstandings is emotional, psychological, economic, and physical punishment, we breed a culture of fear, secrecy, and isolation. So I'm wondering in a real way, How can we pivot towards practicing transformative justice? How do we shift from individual, interpersonal, and interorganized anger towards viable, generative, sustainable, systemic change? Um, And then she lists three questions and unpacks them a little bit, but I'm just going to list the three questions here and then sort of encourage you to um, read the post in our show notes. But the first question is, one, Mm. listen with why as a framework. Um, Two, ask yourselves what can I slash we learn from this? And three, and I think this one's maybe the most important, especially when we're thinking about like online communities. Um, how can my real-time actions mm-hmm. contribute to transforming the situation versus making it worse? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of this also requires not acting um, hastily, right? Um, urgent, yes, especially in... um Hastily. yeah but yeah hastily, thank you um urgent, yes, especially in situations with
0: like violence involved, but like um, so um are you talking about online situations yes, um, okay, um yeah, no, I just 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 my my little
1: like uh, my little like let's be let's be more um, conscious of maybe how we engage in situations, especially when it's online and we're not immediate members of the community involved.
0: Um, There's a habit of policing that we have for each other. We watch each other. And I I think that's something if we do not want uh, policing to be involved in our communities, if we don't want, you know, um, corporations to be compiling our data and making money off of our data, (laughs) then we should also not be policing each other. And compiling yeah. data on each other um, Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: Okay and then Really really quick I just wanted to gloss um, As I was preparing for this episode I was rereading my notes from The fight toxic prisons convergence And I just wanted to Quickly pull up a couple of th- Key things from like the conversations We were having um, One that uh, Transformative justice should be about Process not outcome Um it can end up being punitive when we focus on outcome as opposed to a process of healing and transforming, um, because we have been raised in the systems, so we're going to accidentally recreate them if we're not careful. Right mm. after the revolution, we're going to have a lot of work to do, which I think is a fun is a fun quote I wrote down because um, I think we tend to think of. Sometimes in radical circles, the idea of revolution is like, we do the revolution and then things are better, but like revolution is an ongoing act, right? Like you can't, there's never a point where we're going to be like, the work is done now. Um, the work is going to be ongoing forever. And then just reframing from punishment to healing and caring for others, identifying people in our communities, which is not necessarily geographic, Right. Um, I'm a big I'm a big fan of being involved in your local community, but also online circles, Internet friends, things like that. That's a community that you foster um, that you can build accountability with and go to being careful. And this is a special note for academics, uh, (laughs) those of us, to avoid extractionism. Right. Um, The tendency to take other people's experiences and then use them for our own scholarship. Right, without sort of thinking about the actual material impacts of that. Um, On that note, I wanted to throw out a concept that Dr. Noella Kahanu, who is a, um, she works at the University of Hawaii at uh, Manoa. And she, I was fortunate enough, I think I mentioned this before, but I was fortunate enough to go to a talk that she gave on um, decolonizing museums, which is also. Pro-transformative justice. Um, but she has the she she calls it seating authority, seating spelled S-E-E-D-I-N-G, which is the practice of recognizing that when you're in, like you're in a position of power, you're like in charge of a museum, or a scholar, whatever it is, um, you don't have authority on these subjects. So you cede that authority back to the groups it should be mm. uh, with, right? Cool. And the other concept I'm going to throw out real quick is uh, non-reformist reform, which is a concept developed by um, Ruth Williams Gilmore, who is an abolitionist and prison scholar. And non-reformist reform is an approach to abolition and justice that is, you address the, imme- there's immediate needs that need to be fixed, Right. Um, in a community, in the prison system, um, but you address those in a way that does not increase the power of the systems you're trying to destroy. So you make changes on the immediate to address harm, but you also, as you're doing those, evaluate, is doing this something that makes the system stronger? Is there a way I can do this that does not inc- that fixes the problem or addresses the problem, but doesn't increase the power of the structures in play? Um So I just wanted to throw Mm -hmm. those two things out there because I think they're also really key to this
0: conversation. um, And that's what I have. Cool. Thank you so much, E. Yeah, no problem. That was great. So um, my section is actually a bit smaller. And I'm just going to be talking about the ways in which restorative justice can be applied to education. So I'm going to start out my segment on education with the why. So, like, we talked about why in For incarceration and for policing and all that stuff. But what does it look like in schools? Yeah. Right. So I'm going to start with an article from the American Psychological Association from 2008. It's from the APA uh, Zero Tolerance Task Force. And so the concept is, are zero tolerance policies effective in the schools? An evidentiary review and recommendations. This is from December Mm -hmm. 2008. Now, what's sort of interesting to me is that zero-tolerance policies are going to be the policies that were in schools when I was in schools. It's probably going to be the policies that were in schools for a lot of our listeners if you are also um, sort of older millennials, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they were – I I remember. Yeah. So here's a quote. Since the early 1990s, the national discourse on school discipline has been dominated by the philosophy of zero-tolerance. Originally developed as an approach to drug enforcement, the term became widely adopted in schools in the early 1990s as a philosophy or policy that mandates the application of predetermined consequences, most often severe and punitive in nature, that are intended to be applied regardless of the gravity of behavior, mitigating circumstances, or situational context. Such policies appear to be relatively widespread in America's schools, Although the lack of single definition of zero tolerance makes it difficult to estimate how prevalent such policies may be. Zero tolerance policies assume that removing students who engage in disruptive behavior will deter others from disrupting Mm. and create an improved climate for those students who remain. So what was fascinating to me is how it was inspired by drug enforcement in the 80s and 90s. It was inspired by the Reagan administration, the say no to drugs stuff, right? That is what inspired our schools. And I think it's really such a perfect... um, Schools, it just really shows us how schools are a perfect microcosm of our larger uh, communities, of our larger context. They They really take on the political climate, the national climate of the time, and apply it to adolescents, to children. I wanted to point out
1: that um, the Reagan sort of, the the 80s war on drugs stuff, right, is really commonly identified as the start of mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex. So that's like a very interesting connection. Yeah, Super interesting connection.
0: So I I think we talk about that more. I'm sure we talk about it in episode 16, our incarceration episode. Um, I've definitely talked about all this stuff in mas- the masculinity episode and probably all the way back to the episode seven violence yes. episode. This is all tied together. Right. So yes, when I saw that I got so mad because <laughs> <laughs> um, education should be where we're imagining a different yeah. community because we have the opportunity to create a new world, a better future for children. Yeah. Right. Um, it just is frustrating. So zero tolerance in schools ignores the circumstances in which a student committed an offense. It also treats mistakes made by children as antisocial behavior, and thus children are removed from the school community rather than fostering a healthy community that includes all children, right? So this is where um, suspensions, expulsions, all that stuff takes place right so zero tolerance you're removing a student from the community um Mm -hmm. but here's the thing students still need to go somewhere they still need to go to school right they're (laughs) they're legally forced they have to go to school um so it seems wild to uh remove them from uh the community that they have to be in um which is true again as the microcosm for what E was talking about a a human has to be in some sort of community right yeah like that is it's just not an option So, here's some uh, uh, problems with zero tolerance that are laid out by the American Psychological Association Zero Tolerance Task Force, Mm -hmm. right? So, it's ineffective. Um, (laughs) A key assumption of zero tolerance policies is that the removal of disruptive students will result in a safer climate for others. This is true for our communities, right? Yes. If someone is incarcerated, that should create a safer climate, right? Yes. Although the assumption is strongly intuitive, data on a number of indicators of school climate have shown the opposite effect. That is, that schools with higher rates of school suspension and expulsion appear to have less satisfactory ratings of school climate, Mm. to have less satisfactory school governance structures, that meaning uh, school uh, students' aren't owning their schools, right? They aren't the leaders of their schools, right? So they have less satisfactory school governance structures and to spend a disproportionate amount of time on disciplinary matters, right? So they are spending too much time disciplining students. Gotcha. Perhaps more important, recent research indicates a negative relationship between the use of school suspension and expulsion and school-wide academic achievement, even when controlling for demographics such as socioeconomic status. Although such findings do not demonstrate causality, it becomes difficult to argue that zero tolerance creates more positive school climates when its use is associated with more negative achievement outcomes. So uh, schools are less academically, um, uh, they have less academic achievement um, when suspensions and expulsions are um, happening within the schools. Okay. Okay. So the, also another issue with zero tolerance is racial discrimination. Um, yes. We talk about this a lot in the school to prison pipeline episode, but I it would be wild to not <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. recognize it. So part of the appeal of zero tolerance policies has been the expectation that by removing subjective influences or contextual factors from disciplinary decisions, such as policies would be fairer to students traditionally overrepresented in school disciplinary consequences, right? That has a logic to it. If you do this thing, this will happen. The evidence, however, does not support such an assumption. Rather, the disproportionate discipline of students of color continues to be a concern, Overrepresentation in sus- suspension and expulsion have been found consistently for African American students and less consistently for Latino students, but still um, overrepresented. Right? Yeah, yeah. The ev- they just phrased that strangely. <laughs> um, the evidence shows that such disproportionality is not due entirely to economic disadvantage. Nor are there any data supporting the assumption that African-American students exhibit higher rates of disruption or violence that would warrant higher rates of discipline. Of course. Right. Um, Yes. Rather, um, African-American students may be disciplined more severely for less serious or subjective reasons. Mm. Um, Something that we've talked about a lot. Yeah. And then – I'm going to finally, there's many issues with zero tolerance, this is the final one I'm highlighting, is of course the school-to-prison pipeline. The introduction of zero tolerance policies has affected the delicate balance between the educational and juvenile justice systems, in particular increasing schools' use of and reliance on strategies such as security technology, security personnel, and profiling, Mm. especially in high-minority, high-poverty school districts. Right. The poorer you are, the more students of color you have, the more policing that is taking place in your school, a.k.a. more school money and resources is going to policing rather than education. Yes. Although security technology and school resource officers may be useful as a part of a comprehensive approach to preventing school violence, data are currently insufficient for determining whether these methods which tend to be resource intensive like i just mentioned are yeah. of sufficient benefit to promoting safe schools it, it, so they're not um <laughs> zero tolerance <laughs> this is you know this is a, the american uh, psychological association they're being delicate right right yes. zero tolerance <laughs> policies may also have increased the use of profiling a method of prospectively identifying students who may be at risk of committing or disruption by comparing their profiles to others who have engaged in such behavior in the past. They just defined what profiling is, but that's helpful, Yes. right? So if a student is coming from a certain neighborhood, if a student looks a certain way, dresses a certain way, they might become profiled because um, they match the profile of students who have been uh, disciplined in the past. So alternatives, right? So I'm going to move into discussing um, restorative practices for schools. I almost uh, use exclusively this guide for educators from the Schott Foundation. It's titled uh, restorative practices fostering healthy relationships and promoting positive discipline in schools a guide for educators there's a lot of these sort of guides um and it almost more ma- made more sense for me to just use one rather than jumping around different guides yeah um, yeah but i'm going to link uh, a bunch that i i found um in the show notes but uh, this is the one that i uh stuck with so it's going to sort of start with so, so some of my favorite things um which is uh the positivity of school <laughs> Um, so (laughs) humans are born to learn, but we don't learn in isolation, right? So in order to Mm -hmm. learn, schools need to foster healthy social and emotional spaces for staff and students, right? And this is something that we've talked about in the past, right? Um, in order to learn, a student needs to feel safe, right? Mm -hmm. That's like sort of a number one priority. They need to eat, they need to sleep, they need to be in a school that isn't crumbling to the ground, and they need to feel safe, right? something we talked about in episode 17 for the school climate and trans memoir episode quote as educators partner with districts to move away from zero tolerance discipline policies and ramp up efforts to strengthen safe and supportive schools address conflict, improve school climate, and build a positive school culture that students are connected to, many campuses are looking to implement alternative restorative approaches. Within many communities, schools have de-emphasized traditional school-based disciplinary interventions while greatly expanding the use of zero-tolerance disciplinary approaches that exclude students from their schools through out-of-school suspensions, expulsions, Mm -hmm. and referrals to alternative schools Mm -hmm. or programs. Well, the original intent of these policies and practices was to address serious threats to school safety. The reality is that the vast majority of these extreme punishments are imposed for nonviolent behaviors such as classroom disruptions, skipping school, displays of disrespect, and dress code violations. Right. Mm -hmm. So the imagination of zero tolerance, the imagination that this is going to remove racial profiling, only be for really violent offenses, that just isn't the case, right? So it's, when you are policing, you have the habit of Mm -hmm. over-policing. Continuing with that same uh, resource um, from the Schott Foundation, so what is restorative practices? What can they look like within schools? Restorative practices are processes that proactively build, proactive, right? That's the key. That proactively build healthy relationships and a sense of community to prevent and address conflict and wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. Restorative practices can improve relationships between students, between students and educators, and even between educators, right? It can help interactions between adults whose behavior often serves as a role model for students. I think that's always key um, element to keep in mind is that the adults in a student's lives, they are the ones who are modeling behavior. Right. Yeah. So, what are our restorative practices? There's sort of like this little graphic with like a little circle, and a <laughs> because uh, educators love their little graphics. Um, so, first, address the, and discuss the needs of the school community. Two, build healthy relationships between educators and students. Three, reduce, prevent, and improve harmful behavior. Four, repair harm and restore positive relationships. Right. So, you need to create a pr- positive relationships in order to restore that. Right and then five resolve conflict hold individuals and groups accountable Mm -hmm. so like what are the types of restorative practices there's restorative justice um there's community conferencing in which um which provides students and educators with effective ways to prevent and respond to school conflict uh community conferencing involves a participation of each person affected by the behavior and allow stakeholders to contribute to the conflict resolution process um, there's community service mm-hmm. so uh, individuals to restore harm can provide meaningful service that contributes to the community um, there's peer juries which I actually love right um, so I don't know if you listened back to our um, drawing a dialogue presents episode with Priscilla Carrion, uh, we yeah. talked about art and social justice collectives with adolescents. And a lot of that had to do with uh, involving students in the process, um, creating uh, leadership and growth with those students and giving them a sense of ownership for a community in school. So it's a much more student-centered approach to yes. include peer juries. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is only going to, to have students have a sense of ownership over their school. Um, is going to mean that they want a positive atmosphere, they want to be learning there's so, like, so many reasons why um, student leadership is really important. So I really liked this um, peer juries part of restorative justice, or like a restorative practice So where peer juries allow students who have broken a school rule so the trained student juries, um, they collectively discuss why the rule was broken who is effective and how the referred student can repair that harm caused um, so that there are peers who are creating a supportive space to work with uh, another student who has uh, possibly broken a rule Mm. or a community norm, right? So there's circle processes, um, which I think is wonderful. So it's like a sort of practice that is used proactively to develop relationships and build community, um, which we should be doing all the time with students, right? We should have ways in which we are building a safe community, building a safe atmosphere within a circle. um, They can be used to um, not only talk about respect and problem solving, but also celebrate students and discuss difficult issues. It's just something that you should always be doing um, is building that sort of safe space with your students and again um what i love about um talking about this stuff in terms of school is you have a community built into your classroom right you can do this like tomorrow yeah (laughs) yeah yeah um (laughs) so there's also preventive and post conflict resolution programming there's peer mediation Um, There's informal uh, restorative practices, which I like. Um, So, like, informal restorative practices are small ways educators and other school personnel can influence a positive environment. Examples include the use of affective statements, which communicate people's feelings, and affective questions, which cause people to reflect on how their behavior has affected others, right? So, the informal restorative practices are small ways in which adults within a school can start to move towards talking about feelings, talking about um, building a community rather than um, like punitive discipline. Like if you see a, a child running in the hallway, um, rather than just saying "Hey, stop that," thinking of ways in which you can talk about your feelings, talk about um, the feelings of others, and things like that. Right? Does that make sense? Like small ways in which this sort yes. um, of justice can happen. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the final one actually is social emotional learning. Right. Recognizing yeah. and managing your emotions, developing caring and concern for others, establishing positive relationships. Um, so we have we talked about social emotional learning in episode uh, fourteen. Right, so yeah, to, like yeah. starting to build empathy with students, like starting to encourage students to um, think about others and think about how their actions can affect others, is a practice of restorative justice, right? Yeah, I think, and I think that's such a wonderful way of looking at it. So now, what I wanted to talk about is actually like literally talk about um, an example, like what this looks like. This isn't a real student, but these are two scenarios in which one is a zero tolerance educational. Um, system and the other is a restorative practices based education system right so I'm going to start with the zero tolerance one Um, so the start of the scenario is a student named Carlos he had a heated argument with his parents before leaving school so he's running late let's see the difference that restorative practices and policies and practices can make so zero tolerance Carlos had a heated argument with his parents at his school Mm-hmm. At, before leaving for school. So he's running late. Carlos arrives at school. In the zero tolerance education system, he is greeted by metal detectors and a police search. Carlos is late for his first period class because he um, had a heated argument with his parents. And in the zero tolerance educational system, his teacher scolds him in front of the class. Carlos talks back and is given detention. Carlos gets into a minor altercation in the cafeteria with another student. Zero tolerance says a school police officer detains and arrests both students mm. later that afternoon carlos is held in a juvenile detention facility all afternoon missing school he now has an arrest record and is facing suspension this isn't unusual right so yeah from the effects of having an argument with your student this is sh- everyone should be able to recognize if you start your day having an argument you might not have the best day you might fight with someone else you might take it out on a teacher And this zero-tolerance system is extremely punitive to that, right? It doesn't understand. Right. So how can restorative practices-based education system change this, right, for Carlos? So restarting our day, he has a heated argument with his parents. He's running late. He arrives to school. Teachers and administrators welcome him and his fellow students as they enter, rather than metal detectors. So he's late for his first period class. His teacher waits until after class, so he's not in front of the other students. Mm -hmm. Um, to speak with Carlos to learn more and sets up a meeting with his school counselor, right? So the teacher waits, um, so the teacher isn't embarrassing Carlos in front of everyone else. Um, the teacher asks him what happened. He had an argument with his school, which means he should talk to a school counselor. He should talk to some an adult who can help him with these ar- this c- conflict he's having at home. So he um, gets into a minor altercation in the cafeteria. Um, restorative Practices says, uh, student peer mediators and support staff intervene with the altercation, um, have the students sit down together and de-escalate the situation. And that I love, right? Yes. I talk to students about figuring out ways in which to de-escalate situations all the time, right? How can you take something negative happening and not perpetuate it, not perpetuate that negativity, but figure out ways in which you can de-escalate and end it? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so later that afternoon, uh, Carlos and the other student agree to help clean the cafeteria during a free period. Carlos meets with his counselor and parents after school to help resolve the conflict at home. Right. So it's just it seems obvious to me. Right. You sit down, you listen to the student, you ask them how you can help them you Mm -hmm. have resources to help that student you have care you have other adults and peers who care about each other right yes yeah um but if you've created a zero tolerance educational system honestly it's just easier carlos you were late you talked back to me you are suspended from my class it's so much easier to just be like i'm going to remove this situation but the, the problem is is carlos cannot be removed from his community Right, Carlos is part of that community. So, how do you build a safe environment for him that supports him when he's having a hard time at home? So that's the imagination of that. That sound good? Yeah, no, I love that scenario. I
1: think um, that is one of the issues, right? Is that uh, the punitive system is easier? Like, even if it's not like zero tolerance, even in like you know, like we don't have like a zero tolerance policy because it's because I'm at a university, but we do have like very strict university attendance policies and very strict university like requirements and things like that and it's so much easier for us um especially because we are exploited laborers and not tenured professors to just go with it than to question it right or to try to like right. imagine alternatives um
0: right that's what um and and that's sort of um when we talk about the work that's what we're talking about it is yeah. work it's work <laughs> it's work and it's you asking know, work it of people
1: who are already um, being exploited. And that sucks, but Tired. it is because we live yeah. in a bad system. <laughs> like, we have to come up with the alternative yeah. ourselves.
0: <laughs> yeah, but who do we care about? Do we care about our students? Or yeah. do we care about administration? Do we care about the exploiters? Uh, yeah, exactly. So we need to uh, figure out where our priorities lie. And then so I sort of wanted to end my segment on restorative justice and communities. Okay. So uh, this resource from the Schott Foundation talked about the spheres of influence. Every staff member of a school campus has a sphere of influence, Mm. a network of people and places where one can influence decisions, policies, and practices through one's interactions with colleagues, students, families, and community members. So for me, like part of what I like about restorative justice is that it's holistically imagines the school and the community it's a part of. Yes. It's something I've talked about a lot in my master's thesis, actually, regarding comics in the art classroom. It's important for schools to bridge the gap between home life and school life Since students learn better, it has been researched that students learn better when the school culture is similar to their home culture. So comics is a wonderful example of the possibilities of bridging, since graphic novels bridge language and art to create new forms of communication. Um, I know this is not, like, a one-to-one direct correlation, but sort of examining and exploring these middle spaces Mm -hmm. helps speculate and imagine a new way of interacting with each other and building community together. So, like, there's uh, the classroom, the campus, and the community. So, this resource, this is, uh, honestly, these resources um, continue on a lot lot, because there's just a lot of work um, that can be talked about. Um, So, they talk about the four P's. Um, so how uh, you can interact with a person, with a place, with a practice, and a plan. Okay. Right? So the person is the way in each, each individual interacts with one another. A place is how the environmental conditions and factors affect individuals and how they interact with one another. Practice is the opportunities for educators to prevent a conflict, resolve challenges, and create chances for relationship growth. And a plan is a school community's plan for making restorative practices a regular part of school culture, right? So you can do person, you can do place, practice, and plan. And then the three spheres of influence that they talk about is within the classroom, on the campus, so like the whole school area, and the community. Um, And they talk about person, place, practice, and plan for each one of these. Um, I obviously can't read each one, but I encourage you to read them online just go download the pdf um but yeah a lot of it is questions like uh, questions to ask yourself um so for in the classroom how can you interact with your person right how do i interact with students how do i interact with my colleagues even when we disagree if i have a Mm -hmm. conflict with one of my students how do i respond if i see a conflict arising between students in the classroom how do I respond? So um, let's do campus, right? What's person on campus, right? Yeah, um, yeah. What am I doing to ensure that students feel welcomed and valued by their peers and other school staff? What steps can be taken to make sure the school is in a safe place and accessible place regardless of setting? So the school bus, the classroom, the cafeteria, after school and athletic field, all that affects a student's education, right? So for campus, um, the plan, right? How are pro-social behaviors taught and used as preventive techniques? How apparent is the conflict prevention and resolution strategy to students and staff? How is it linked to classroom practice? Mm. And then community, right? How do we talk about communities? Um, In many places, schools cater to the district needs of students and families. As a part of that role, schools often are a bridge for caretakers and families to service providers, higher education institutions, faith-based partners, business, health, and academic partners. The ways in which schools interact with the surrounding community can have a significant influence on whether restorative practices become not just part of the culture of schools, but also of the wider community. So for person, how does the school welcome community members? How does the school ensure that a culturally respectful and responsive place, regardless of the setting for schools and adults? Mm. Um, how For place, how are parents, caretakers, and community members engaged in school activities that connect to the school? For practice, how are restorative practices modeled by youth and adults in the community? What type of input can the community provide to address conflict inside and outside of the school and in the community? So basically... We're just talking about like the imagination, right? Questions you can ask yourself, things you can move towards. And then there's like an unbelievable amount of resources in the restorative practices in the San Francisco Unified School District. I'll have a link, Um, but they just have PDF after PDF, how to run a circle, how to implement restorative practices on very specific things, Um, just like tons and tons of worksheets. I know teachers, I know you love your worksheets, (laughs) so they have tons and tons available, Um, and I think that's just wonderful. There's a lot of people doing this work. Yeah. And then I actually wanted to sort of, I, I mentioned it, um, talking about RJ and communities and talking about how comics helps imagine these different ways of communication, right? Yeah. Um, I sort of wanted to read the introduction to my thesis Ooh. that I wrote in 2017. So my master's thesis is titled Developing the Cartooning Mind. The History, Theory, Benefits, and Practice of Comic Books in Visual Arts Education. And we're here at Drawing a Dialogue to talk about comics, to talk about art education. And so I just wanted to read my introduction to my thesis to think about ways in which why me and E sit here and talk about these things with you. Author's note at the beginning of my thesis. This research took place between the months of September 2016 in April 2017. In these past few months, police brutality, racism, and resistance have entered the mainstream conversation. Donald Trump is in the White House and has just dropped the largest non-nuclear bomb in the U.S. history onto Afghanistan. Civilian deaths in Syria and Iraq are growing due to recent U.S. bombing raids. The words black lives matter have become incendiary and we are still waiting for legitimate police reforms and justice for the deaths of black people at the hands of police. Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, and Philando Castile to name only a few of the hundreds of murders by police that take place in the United States every year. While at first it may seem incongruous for this to be mentioned in a thesis about comic book creation and art education, it is extremely pertinent. This is the world in which children are learning and growing and the context in which art is being made. It is detrimental to ignore the political atmosphere in which educators are asking children to create. I present my research as one small token to push pedagogy in a positive direction, just one aspect of a larger picture to support children and their development on this earth. So I just wanted to reiterate why it's important to talk about this stuff um, in the context in which we are which is comic books. And that's the end of my segment. Yeah, thank you for that. So now usually we talk about our conclusion. What did we learn? What were our goals of this? I feel like I just sort of... You did the conclusion. Mentioned my <laughs> conclusion. Yeah, my my conclusion, which is this is important to development of children. This is yeah. important to communities. This is where we create art. And also I do want to mention the, the way we were talking about, you know, not as comics as a metaphor but comics as a way of rethinking yes um sort of those middle spaces rethinking the ways we address things i think yeah i think there's a lot of overlap
1: there is Do you have any oh uh, yeah i think um art and theory and literature and all of that stuff is critical to transformative justice practices and abolitionist practices because they are the thing that sort of let us think through what alternatives might look like. Um, So I think you're absolutely right when you talk about that. Yeah.
0: Thank you. So now it's time for letters to the editor, um, our regular sermon in which we revisit past topics and add new research, and sometimes we actually read email you've sent us. Um, You can send us letters at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Um, So we got an email about episode 22, um, which is our young adult YA teen literacy episode. And sort of this listener was asking about uh, manga scanlations and piracy websites. They sort of said that they have read over 100 series between 7th grade and 11th grade on a manga reader account. Mm -hmm. But um, so these are scanlations. Um, Do you want to explain what scanlations are, E? Sure. So, essentially, a scanlation is, um,
1: they take the print manga and scan it, and then a non-official translator... In in Japanese. Yeah, in Japanese. They scan the original, like, in Japanese manga, because not all manga is licensed and given a translation, right? Right. And then unofficial translators translate it, and then publish those translations for people to read. So they're, like, unofficial, non-licensed translations, basically.
0: Right, and this reader was talking about how this was really popular for them when they were a teenager, and so how does this affect teen literacy? And I, you know, looked around, but usually there aren't statistics for illegal activity, so so since this is a piracy thing, there aren't the 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 pirating websites aren't sharing this st- their statistics. Right? Yeah, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, <laughs> like they aren't they aren't publishing how many readers they have, um because they would get shut down. Yeah. So what I had to do was sort of look at um, what people do publish, and that is money, right? Yeah. So so w- um, how much money is our piracy websites pulling away from traditional publishing is sort of what you can look up and find. <laughs> so... <laughs> right? Because that makes yeah, it sense. Does, it does, does. Um, and then, so unfortunately, I found uh, sort of two realms of uh, uh, news articles. One realm is how piracy is killing off uh, manga. Okay. So here's a quote. Impact to Japanese manga sales from online piracy. This is from 2014. Sales of comic books in Japan dropped from 4.3 billion to 2.9 billion oof. between the years of 2007 and
1: 2011. Right. Oof,
0: oof. And then uh, other websites talk about how impacted these publishers are um, from piracy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but they keep citing things From around 2007. Something else happened after 2008-2009. And that was the American economy uh, tanked. And borders closed. Oh, you're right. (laughs) And so um, uh, manga sales uh, plummeted because borders didn't exist anymore. Yeah. So (laughs) it's sort of a false correlation to blame piracy websites. And so... (laughs) So that's sort of what I found. Um, I didn't find anything on how many teens are reading piracy websites because I just don't think those numbers exist. If you have those numbers, go ahead and share them with me. Um, I will keep you private. I'll keep you secret. Um, keep you secret. <laughs> I don't share my sources. Um, so,
1: <laughs> so that's what I got. That's really. That's also really interesting um, because I feel like there were definitely Scanlation websites before two thousand seven also, so that's like a very fun <laughs> sort of
0: like I graduated high school in two thousand seven and I definitely was reading but you know what I was mostly reading? I was mo- I wasn't reading popular like things that are published, I wasn't reading, right? Yeah. I wasn't reading One Piece or whatever online. I was reading queer manga. I was reading <laughs> yeah gay this... manga that wasn't well, getting published. And that this is specifically about like Yaoi, or I guess it's not, but I think of Yaoi.
1: Um like the queer manga, yeah, wasn't there were no there were no official translations to buy, so like, yeah, and it was really rare,
0: yeah, yeah. And when they started actually translating gay manga, boys love manga or girls love manga, I buy it. I have yeah. plenty of it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then I found an article: great time for manga fans from Publishers Weekly, um, which only came. This article is from May twenty four, twenty nineteen. And so it's just a couple of months old, um, but I was just sort of talking about um, they mentioned piracy and piracy remains a concern to artists and publishers. But Japanese publishers are now taking steps to try to curb its impact on their bottom line around the world. I'm a CEO of um, Media Do International, a Japanese digital distributor. Um, says that manga publishers banded together uh, last year to appeal to the government to take action on banning certain piracy sites. And publishers in Japan and North America are increasingly turning to SimulPub. So that means that uh, books that are being published in Japan are simultaneously being published in North America in English. And so you don't need to scan late because you aren't waiting for the next installment because they're getting published at the same time. So Viz Media is trying to do that. Uh, Manga Plus websites are trying to do that. A decade ago, manga piracy was a relatively constrained fandom activity. But today, it's a parallel industry fueled by aggregators uh, generating ad revenue and subscription sales, um, was a quote on this thing so they're concerned about that kind of thing because it was fandom based like E was saying like trying to find titles that you weren't that weren't available yes um, but yeah. now they kind of are um, and and now those websites are just generating ad revenue and they're just making yeah. money without paying the artists and that i think is actually uh something to be frank about is that um manga artists are also cartoonists who deserve to be paid and uh traditional publishing is the way that they're getting paid yeah. um so you should think about that <laughs> yeah and, and 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 you know it's funny to mention this in the this episode but i just think um do corporate websites do ad scor- um, websites who sell ads like amazon do you think they deserve our money or do you think independent artists deserve our money um oh, yeah, and that is absolutely. what i'm gonna leave you with um <laughs> i'm not here to <laughs> scold you i'm just saying who's making money right <laughs> Yeah. Um and then another letters to the editor I had actually was Do you wanna go? And then I can go. Oh, yeah,
1: sure. I wanted to shout out um, in my critical pedagogy group last month. We read uh, "We Want to Do More Than Survive: Abolitionist Teaching Strategies in the Pursuit of Freedom" by um, Dr. Bettina Love, which ruled. It's uh, she teaches teachers like K through twelve teachers, so it's mostly aimed at K through twelve teachers, um, but it is. Uh, essentially what it says on the tin, like, different st- like the importance of approaching teaching with an abolitionist framework um, and strategies and things like that, and it's written in like a very lovely, accessible style, so
0: I'm a big fan. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. And so I wanted to shout out in our Letters to the Editor segment, I wanted to shout out ReaderCon, which I attended in um, mid-July. Mm-hmm. Um, so ReaderCon is um 30 years old they're a conference on imaginative literature um so basi- basically that usually means sci-fi fantasy um so it's a sci-fi fantasy book convention okay it has a couple of comics it, there but it was mostly books authors i i was there for just one day i was just there for a uh, friday afternoon um but truly it was amazing discussions that were taking place but one of the uh, so i went to a panel on um, uh, the horror of being female, so like all women authors talking about women in horror. I also went to a panel on fascism as a genre, Ooh. so people who uh, write about fascism and fantasize about what the fa- futures of fascism could wreak on our future. Um, and then I also went to a black horror uh, documentary with a professor who. Um, teaches at I believe UC California University of California and she UCLA I believe and she teaches um horror movies um, with uh, black people in them but also um behind the camera um yeah. and she also invites she's um I guess she's uh viral because Jordan Peele comes to her um <laughs> uh classroom and so I got to attend her documentary and she did a talk but also Uh, What's uh, pertinent for this episode is I went to a panel with authors um, talking about a post-police world. So they sort of uh, were talking about um, abolishing the police and what that could look like um, as like an author, as a speculative author, right? Yeah. And so uh, one of the authors there uh, talked about how much he loved police procedurals, right? That's something that's a type of fiction that we love um there's a lot of police procedurals on television there's a lot of in books and detective novels Mm -hmm. um the authors were talking about how that is fantasy right that the actual fantasy of police actually investigating (laughs) they were talking about how (laughs) rare that is that isn't a thing (laughs) um It's just, it's true. They, I don't have statistics, but they were talking about it. Like the activists were talking about how, um, it's, it's usually police, like something happens and then you call them and then they just sort of, uh, she, she was talking about how, um, if your, uh, house is robbed and you call the police, they just like sort of lecture you on, yeah. um, locking your doors and then they leave and nothing happens, which is an experience I've had. Yep. <laughs> um, because I, I had I had my, my car, I had my backpack stolen from my car once and literally nothing happens. But you have to call the police in order to get a report, in order to get insurance, um, mm. which is actually something to think about is how insurance, in order to get money that you deserve because you've paid for insurance, um, you have to get a police involvement, right? Yeah. Um, of course, they did nothing, um, <laughs> which I'm glad for. Yeah, but yeah. And then also they talked about, in this post-police world, um, the panel did, talked about how there's a joy in punitive violence um, in in action movies, um, and how that hyper-masculine hero cop is sort of like a mixture fantasy. So, like, they were talking about the cops and sort of that Punisher logo that's becoming popular in, like, real life, right? Yeah. Even though the Punisher is, like, sort of an anti-cop figure, um, but how that, there's, like, a lot of fantasy in punitive violence which was interesting i'm not saying that's positive it's just like something that's like a type of fiction that we see a lot of yeah and they also recommended bystander training um so for people who like rape crisis centers if something is happening um to be a bystander who intervenes um right you can get training for that kind of thing yeah um so the police don't need to be called because they wouldn't do anything anyway yeah um <laughs> So that is Yeah. I just wanted to mention ReaderCon. It was just wonderful. It was like a higher level of panel that I've ever gone to. It was higher level than a lot of uh, comic convention panels that I've been to. Mm-hmm. Um and I really, really was impressed. Um uh so shout out ReaderCon. <laughs> I keep wanting no. to be like, Thanks, ReaderCon, but that's ReaderCon <laughs> isn't a person. But thank you. It's been a- no. <laughs> I turned that's 30 cool. this year, which is interesting. This is the 30th year for a reader con so it's as old as me um
1: Um, yeah and actually since you brought up like bystander intervention training i do want to shout out that um that is a thing and a lot of local communities and different groups do that um and i definitely recommend just going over to google typing in bystander intervention workshops and seeing what you can find in your area
0: A a person on this panel chelsea r miller uh does that work um, yeah. I think in Boston, they recommended going to your local rape crisis center because they mm-hmm. probably have bystander training. But I'm sure Google uh, is your friend sometimes. <laughs> sometimes Finding local things. <laughs> helpful. So that's it for Letters to the Editor. Um, so I just want to say thank you to Downtown Boys for the song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. You can get it off their Bandcamp. Please go support them. They're wonderful. Um, uh, Joey Um, does a lot of, um, education around this topic, um, and, uh, histories and stuff. Um, so who's in the band? Um, Yeah, awesome. So, honestly, Downtown Boys are great. Support them. Yes.
1: We will have all of the citations in the show notes and I think links to, like, additional reading and, like, uh, resources up on drawingadialogue.com. Uh, drawingadialogue.com is hosted by Comic Art Ed, Kathy's very cool comic (laughs) arts education website. Thank you. You can email us at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. We like to get letters. You can follow us on Twitter at drawadialogue. You can follow me on Twitter at ehetja, which is E-H-E-T-J-A.
0: And you can follow me at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. Cool. So, Kathy. what are you reading? E. Oh, you beat me oh, to it. it's your turn. <laughs> it's my turn.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um so this is the seat- this happens to me every summer because uh I have an Aquarius stellium, so when it gets very close to Leo season, the sun is in opposition to like everything in my chart and I get very, like, maudlin and only want to, like, lay in bed and read sentimental things all day. And so this is the time of summer where I just have read fan fiction for three weeks straight. So all I've read for three weeks straight is, like, hundreds and hundreds of Good Omens fan fictions. <laughs> um, extremely Did good. Did you watch good the TV
0: o- show? <laughs> yeah,
1: You're I like watched it? the show. Oh, okay. The show's fine. I mean, it's not great. It's fine. I just only care about Aziraphale and Crowley. Um... So, <laughs> I so for to me fan fiction is like my version of romance novels. Like, I want the like the very good sweet romance, and fan fiction gives that to me. So I've just read a lot of that.
0: Yeah, good. I'm glad. What have you very read, much, Kathy? Um, so uh, again, the summer summer makes me want to just read a plain old novel. <laughs> like, you know those beach reads. Um, yes. So I've been reading uh, The Lonely Hearts Hotel by Heather O'Neill. She published an essay on Literary Hub that I really enjoyed. Um, so it's sort of about research. But it also talks about her um, childhood in Montreal. Um, it's sort of like a mm-hmm. lovely... The figures who sort of reflect um, life. I, I, it's, it's, it's quite lovely. I would really, really recommend it. And it's a good beach read if you um, also like to read nonsense on the beach and very
1: cool very cool
0: <laughs> uh, so thank you for listening to drawing a dialogue um, my name is kathy g johnson and i'm e miss jackson farewell to our <laughs>